Hi, everyone. Before we get started, I just wanted to thank you for your support and for listening to Heritage Explains every week. Conservatives have a lot of work to do when it comes to the world of podcasting. And if you want to help us, please jump on iTunes and leave us a comment or share our episodes on social media. It really does make a difference. Okay, now back to this week's episode. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. The Green New Deal. You've probably heard about it by now. It's the mega climate and energy initiative spearheaded by New York's newest radical, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The plan aims to fundamentally transform how Americans produce energy, harvest crops, raise livestock, build homes, drive cars, and manufacture goods. Essentially, the way we all live our lives, all within 10 years. Ocasio-Cortez says that she and her liberal colleagues are calling for a national industrial economic mobilization plan not seen since World War II. Even the solutions that we have considered big and bold are nowhere near the scale of the actual problem that climate change presents to us, to our country, and to the world. The plan is ambitious, to say the least. And in the week or so that the text of the resolution has been available, even the mainstream media has found it flawed. The Economist called the proposal deeply unserious. The Washington Post editorial board labeled it as fantasy. New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote that the Green New Deal represents the greatest centralization of power in the hands of the Washington elite in our history. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi dismissed the plan as the Green Dream, or whatever they call it. But guess what? Despite this, Ocasio-Cortez has still been successful at rallying the ultra-left around this proposal. Support for the Green New Deal has even become somewhat of a litmus test for 2020 presidential candidates. Our planet is in peril, and we need to be bold. It's one of the reasons why I signed on to the resolution, a co-sponsor of the resolution for the Green New Deal. And there's a lot of people now that are blowing back on the Green New Deal. They're like, oh, it's impractical. Oh, it's too expensive. Oh, it's all of this. If we used to govern our dreams that way, we would have never gone to the moon. God, that's impractical. You see that ball in the sky? I support a Green New Deal, and I will tell you why. Climate change is an existential threat to us, and we have got to deal with the reality of it. You know, we're for what we're for, and we (laughs) want to see a green economy in the next decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. We need a moonshot. Like John F. Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon in the next 10 years as a measure of America's innovation, entrepreneurial spirit. Why not make the same national call to action to say, let's create a green economy in the next decade? This week, Senator Mitch McConnell announced that he plans to allow everyone in the Senate to participate in the Just How Radical Are You litmus test. I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal. And we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. We'll give everybody an opportunity to go on record 
and uh, see how they feel about the Green uh, New Deal. And to be clear, that's all this is right now. No one is voting to make this a law. A non-binding resolution is essentially an opinion. So what's in this resolution? How much would it cost? Would it actually work? And is that even the intention of the left? Today, Nick Loris, an economist and Heritage's Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy, explains. So, Nick, one of the targeted outcomes of the Green New Deal would be that the government will step in and force elimination of greenhouse gas emissions from transportation and other infrastructure. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean electric cars for everyone? Hard to say. You know, they say the devil's in the details and the the devil is kind of scarcely present in this proposal because there's not a lot of details or policy substance into how they want to accomplish these goals. But essentially, that's what people took it as, is that 92% of our transportation needs are met through petroleum products. And so if you want to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions, you are essentially banning the internal combustion engine and transitioning to electric vehicles, high-speed rail, uh, all of these things that are uh, economically costly right now uh, and will be for a a very long time. I mean, the reason that 92% of our transportation needs are met through petroleum products is because they're affordable and reliable. And so this proposal even insinuated that we were going to switch over from air travel to high-speed rail, uh, which, again, is another one of the the, uh, attention-grabbing segments of the Frequently Asked Questions documents saying that, you know, yeah, we don't need airplanes anymore. Let's just focus on high-speed rail, and let's just electrify the entire transportation sector, which would, again, come at huge, huge costs to the economy uh, and is technologically even, you know, Questionable if we could even do something like that, yeah, especially in, travel. Yeah, How especially in work? ten years. So, painting this picture again, another one of their outcomes would be to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from manufacturing, agriculture, and and other industry sector, sectors. What would that look like? Solar panels everywhere. Yeah, essentially solar panels everywhere, uh, eliminating the consumption of beef products because methane emissions are are one of the bigger, uh, if you want to call it an alleged climate challenge, is methane emissions from the agricultural sector as well as land use conversions. And so effectively what they would want to do is, and this is not all that new of a surprise, this is something the left has been talking about for years, is to radically reduce the amount of beef that is consumed in the United States and around the world because of those methane emissions, not to mention uh, you know, how people farm and those land use conversions. The manufacturing sector, there's so much energy that goes into uh, producing goods. I mean, that, that's why uh, a lot of businesses have come to the United States over the past 10 years is because natural gas is such a critical component and input for uh, a lot of manufactured goods, uh, chemicals, and plastics in the United States. And they've invested over $200 billion in the United States over the past 10 years and cited cheap natural gas as a reason why they're coming to the United States. This would devastate and uh, you know, essentially eradicate all of those jobs and, and those industries because of this alleged notion that we need to transition away from cheap natural gas uh, and go towards more expensive renewables. 
So they're also proposing that we build a smart grid to replace our current electric grid, upgrade water infrastructure, and way more. How much will this cost? And can you kind of put that in perspective for us? Because I have a feeling this number is going to be so large that it'll be hard for us to even really wrap our it is. Around it. Yeah, for sure. And one of the problems is because the plan is so radical, it's hard to actually get a credible cost estimate of what this would actually do. I mean, even just looking at the transition away from um, coal, oil, and uh, natural gas and nuclear to 100% renewables. And so if you try to boil that down into what that would look like from a consumer standpoint, I mean, you're talking about potentially hundreds of dollars per month. Uh, in your electricity bill of an increase, and those costs spread throughout the economy. And and that's such a critical component that people haven't really been able to get their hands around because, yes, you pay more uh, at the gasoline station or pay more for your electricity, but because energy is such a necessary component for all of the goods and services we have here in the United States, you're paying more at the grocery store, you're paying more when you buy clothes at Walmart, when you go out to eat, when you go to the movies. And so it has these huge, huge ripple effects throughout the economy where you're talking about uh, potentially millions of jobs lost and and millions of uh, or trillions of dollars lost in gross domestic product and then tens of thousands of dollars lost in household income. So those are costs are just a, a small snapshot of what could happen. And again, that's just looking at one tiny component of this resolution, not talking about eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from the manufacturing and agricultural sectors and the transportation sectors. That's just looking at the electricity sector. So uh, it would be uh, economically cataclysmic uh, and really for no meaningful climate benefit, too. I think we would essentially go back to the Stone Age, reduce our emissions to net zero, and uh, Assuming you believe the climate models that they use to estimate um, what CO2 does and its impact on warming, uh, even if we were to get net zero GHG emissions, you're talking about mitigating global temperatures a few tenths of a degree Celsius by the turn of the century because other countries like China and India and where a lot of the GHG emissions are coming from, uh, they're not going to change the way they behave. Right. Yeah. And that's in the plan too, right? I think that's one of their last bullet points is kind of like, Oh, yeah. Also in the plan to get everybody else to do this, too. Yeah. And good luck. Uh, You know, it's going to be challenging when there is, you know, a billion and a half people without access to reliable electricity to say, hey, we're going to forgo all of this cheap energy in coal and in natural gas and in some instances nuclear uh, in favor of living a life where we're less prosperous, where we don't have access to electricity or clean drinking water and where economic growth is such a critical priority for these developing countries and they're just going to choose to forgo inexpensive electricity. It's just a it's a dream. And as the Washington Post called it, it's an absolute fantasy. So the other aspect of this plan, it also says it includes provisions that, quote, offer economic security for those unable or unwilling to work and promise to create millions of good high-wage jobs for willing Americans. Does it say how it's going to provide those jobs? It kind of does and kind of doesn't. Uh, Again, it's lacking a lot of policy substance. What they're planning is a a massive government spending program and uh, spending trillions of dollars, which means the taxpayers are spending trillions of dollars. They call it in this plan investment multiple times over, but it's not investment. It's, It's just 
government spending and taxation to create these green jobs. And we saw just a small microcosm of that in the in the stimulus bill under the Obama administration with weatherization programs and, and huge grants going to um, crony companies. And yes, it created some of those jobs in some of those sectors, but you know, at cost uh, to the to the rest of the economy because when you're you're taxing and spending you're taking money out of the economy and that money could have been invested elsewhere by the private sector to create even more jobs so time and time again we've seen that these green jobs programs create some jobs uh, in those uh, green economies building windmills and and building solar panels but it's at the expense of the rest of the economy and, and at the expense of families who are better suited to spend their money the way that they see fit. We'll be right back after a short break. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. So Nick, how much of this do you think is just a crazy grand gesture, a strategic move by the left to, to push everyone farther left than they've been comfortable to go when it comes to climate change legislation. I do think that's uh, part of the strategy is to, to throw the most aggressive, egregious plan at the wall and make any type of policy uh, that is still economically bad and that wouldn't impact climate a little more um, feasible politically. But even those policies tend to not be very popular with the American public and with a, a large sector of the legislature because of the cost of those policies, whether it's a, a carbon tax or cap and trade program or even some of the regulations under the Obama administration like the Clean Power Plan. You know, these may have support on the surface and they may sound like great, great ideas, uh, but at the same time, uh, Americans just aren't willing to pay for them. There was a, a recent poll done by the AP that said Americans wouldn't even be willing to pay more than uh, $10 a month uh, in additional energy bills to combat climate change. 68% of Americans said they wouldn't be willing to pay an additional $10 a month. Uh, and I think they understand uh, what's happening in France uh, when these green policies uh, you know, continue to exact money out of their wallets and, and out of their bank accounts, and they're not seeing any climate benefit, you get to see people who are struggling to make ends meet, and they're diverting more money that they could be spending on food and in healthcare and in education on their energy bills. And for no environmental return, people get frustrated by these policies. And so I think even the less extreme versions of the Green New Deal are still going to be very politically challenging because of their economic costs and because you don't see any real climate benefit from them. So instead of plans like the new Green Deal, what does the Heritage Foundation think we could be doing instead? Yeah, I think there's a, a number of productive policies that we should be looking at, regardless of whether you think climate change is a problem or not. There are uh, certainly regulatory barriers that we need to reduce for new nuclear power plants in the United States, for uh, renewable energy technologies. Uh, energy trade is a, a critical component of what we can do moving forward to help provide other countries with cleaner sources of energy, whether that's uh, fracking and more natural gas in some of these developing countries or helping to build new nuclear power plants. So energy trade and, and knowledge sharing could be really critically com uh, a critical component moving forward to provide the world's um, increasing energy needs. Uh, and also looking at our national labs, you know, there's a lot of great research being done 
at the Department of Energy's National Labs basic research. Uh, and there should be better pathways for the private sector to come in and using their own money, tap into that research and see if there's any commercially viable products that they can spin out into the, the energy sector or you know any broad manufacturing technology sectors as well. It doesn't necessarily have to just be energy, but it shouldn't be done at the Department of Energy. They shouldn't be spending money to commercialize specific technologies. They should be doing very basic research that the private sector wouldn't undertake to meet a national objective and then allow the private sector to come in and spin that research into commercially viable products. That's what we've seen work in the United States. I mean, the reason that we got the internet and GPS out of government research is because they were researching things for national security objectives. And then entrepreneurs saw interesting, innovative ways to take that research and spin it off into the private sector. We need to be doing more of that at the Department of Energy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for listening to Heritage Explains. We have a new episode next week with Tim talking about the racial history being made in Kentucky. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift.